0: I did want to mention to the optometrists in this group that even though this is not, my lecture here is not COPE approved, so you can't get credit for it, but this is a series of lectures. This is just uh, two hours of lecture in a six-hour series that Pacific Cataract and Laser Institute did for optometrists in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana. And they did get COPE approval for it. so. Um, but I don't think it's available yet, but our PR person said that within a month, it'll be available. So you could go online and choose that lecture and just go to the end, and you'll be able to answer the questions from what I told you. <laughs> so, So... I don't know if you saw my email address at the beginning, but it's basically my first name dot last name at pcli.com paul.chang at pcli.com and if you email me then I can give you send you the information when it's available so you can actually get credit for this lecture <laughs> okay so um, I think we're being recorded and it looks like We drove out all the non-I related people. (laughs) I don't know, there's still one person. (laughs) I don't know what you do with eye care, but I figured out who everyone else was. (laughs) Are you in eye care? Oh, great. Oh, yes. Hi, Sandy. (laughs) All right. Okay, so uh, we'll continue on with our minimally effective glaucoma procedures, but it's actually minimally invasive glaucoma procedures because Zen gel stents, I think, does work really well. Um, I started doing Zen gel stents uh, probably four or five years ago. And, you know, I used to do plenty of TRABs. I've been a glaucoma specialist for 25 years now. And trabeculectomy was the main surgery I was doing. I know there's some people who prefer tubes over, sh- over traps, but uh, I find that I get good results with my traps. But it's very um, tedious surgery, time-consuming, and uh, there's also potential for complications. And the Zengelsten, can give you the same bleb and low pressure. And it's such a simple procedure, I mean, less than 10 minutes if everything goes well. So the Zen gel stent basically goes in through just either through TM or just above it. This arrow should be higher. And then into the subconjunctival space. So when it was first FDA-approved, it was approved as an ab-internal approach. So you have to go in through uh, peripheral corneal incision and then come out to the superior angle and uh, find the area just anterior to the iris uh, with this inserter that's basically a needle, a 23-gauge needle, I believe. And uh, you once you're in the subconjunctival space, there's a slider that pushes the Zengel stent out. And it looks like curved here, but it's not. It's a stiff um, porcine collagen stent that uh, gets pushed in the subconjunctival space so that a millimeter of it stays in the anterior chamber, two millimeters in the sclera, and then three millimeters in the subconjunctival space. But as soon as it gets wet, it becomes like a wet noodle, so it becomes more flexible. So, this is basically the end result of it. And uh, sometimes you can see the anterior chamber portion on slit lamp exam, other times you have to gonio them if uh, the sclera or the limbus is further anterior. So. Um, It's a 6-millimeter gelatin tube with a lumen diameter of 45 microns. And on gonio, this is what it looks like. And this one is a little more posterior than it should be. Uh, When you go too posterior, when you stick it in, you can hit the blood vessel and they can bleed. So that's why you want to go either through TM or more corneal. I think this might have been one of my earlier ones. Um, so, in the subconj area, uh, you can see this sort of yellowish stent. And this looks pretty flat, so this may not be working properly. All right, so here's the surgery. So, it started off FDA approved as ab internal, but uh, some surgeons came up with another idea thinking, okay, why don't we do it, try going ab external, coming in from the outside. And I found it to be much easier doing it this way than going ab internal, where you make an incision down here, go across, and then try to insert it somewhere here. Um, okay, so this is the actual surgery. So I put a corneal traction suture and uh, this is caliper set at three millimeters. So I'm trying to figure out where three millimeters is here and then another three and then another three, because I want to go in around seven or eight millimeters back so that the stent will end up here. But my needle hole will be way back here, so it's not going to leak out through the needle hole. I was just checking to make sure there is a stent there before I go in. So I expressed the stent out a little bit, and then I just pushed it back into the needle. So now I rotate the eye down, and I'm trying to find the area where there aren't too many blood vessels. And you just uh, go through. Initially, I want to go into tenons, but then I want to become more superficial, and it's sort of hard to do to figure out exactly what level you're in. But once you get about two to three millimeters from the limbus, you inject, uh, pierce the sclera, and uh, you want to try to stay parallel with the iris, and that needle tip should end up between the iris and the cornea, preferably right in the middle, bisecting that angle. And so, as soon as I can see the needle tip, then I advance the slider forward and I'll see the stent coming out. And once the stent is actually in the anterior chamber, if you keep on advancing the lever, the needle retracts back into this inserter, so you're less likely to hit a blood vessel. I guess it didn't retract all the way. So that's why you hit a blood vessel. (laughs) So, it's bleeding now, (laughs) but that's okay. Um, As long as the stent is in place, yeah, it'd be nice if it didn't bleed, because then you can see better. But you can barely see the outline of the stent here. And if too much of the stent is in the anterior chamber, you can grab it and pull it out a little, so you only have about one millimeter in there. And uh, it's hard to tell on this two-dimensional video but this conjunctival tissue is actually ballooning up because the, eye, the fluid from the inside is coming out. And the other way you can tell is just by pressing on the eyeball and it's getting softer. Now I'm using a gonio lens and I'm looking at this mirror and there's the stent. So I was just checking to make sure the stent's in the right position Now injecting mitomycin C, going from a a different location and coming across and injecting into this subconscious space. You know, when we first started doing trabeculectomies, we were so afraid of mitomycin C, we would apply it for 30 seconds to a minute and then we'd irrigate it out. But as we used it more and more, we realized it's not that toxic. So now we're actually injecting mitomycin C into the area where you want the bleb to form and just leaving it there. Just to prevent fibrosis, right? Right. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) for those that don't know what mitomycin C is, (laughs) uh, it's an anti-cancer medicine, and it kills fibroblasts. And... uh, it helps to prevent scarring after the stent is in. Because the number one reason for these glaucoma procedures to fail is wherever you uh, you put the stent or made a new drain, it can scar over. Now I'm just injecting dexamethasone in the inferior cul-de-sac just to help prevent uh, inflammation and scarring. So, they've got a nice bleb, or elevation of the conjunctival tissue there. So, I'm just drying around there, remove the traction suture. Uh, Then, yeah, usually I'll check the needle tracks, the holes too, to make sure it's not too big, because I did have, I think, one patient where the tissue is just so fragile. Uh, anywhere I put a needle in, they had a, a big hole and I had to suture it. Okay, so we talked about that already ab internal versus ab external. Uh, yes? So with the needle, you don't need to suture it. You just the uh, what they need make the, the needle, what? The way you enter. Right, so I believe it's 23 gauge, and uh, the retina doctor will say if you poke, uh, even if you poke the sclera with a 23 gauge, you don't usually suture that, right? Yeah. So the con, if you if you can get deep enough so that you're not just subconj, but your subtenons also. But then by the time you get to, uh, closer to the limbus, you want to be more subconj. but the tenons will help to plug up the, the needle hole. It, it rarely leaks through that. Just that one patient I told you about, uh, he was leaking <laughs> the next day, so I had to take him back to the OR and suture it. Um, okay, so. So who do we do zengelstins on? Um, So zengelstin is indicated for all glaucomas, mild, moderate, or severe. So that's the nice thing about the zengelstin. It has the potential to get the pressure really low, like low teens. I've had some patients even in the single digits. Um, But basically, it's almost as effective as a trabeculectomy. But the trabeculectomy can be more effective in some patients because you, just, you can make a larger opening, you can let more fluid come out and avoid the, the scarring that comes when just a little bit of fluid is going out. So if you look at the ganglion cell complex, um, the red means the layer is thinner, meaning a lot of nerve tissue has been damaged and gone. So this would be uh, like a severe open-angle glaucoma patient. And uh, so, there was a study that looked at Zen XenGelStat, 185 patients that had Zen, 169 that had trabeculectomy, uh, with no prior filtering surgery, so there's no scar tissue in the superior conge. And uh, there was 35% reduction from pre-surgical uh, medicated pressures. And that was what they are looking for, and 80% of the patients needed fewer topical meds postoperatively at one year. And when they compared the two groups, they were about the same. So, since I started doing this gel stent about four or five years ago, I think I've only done about two or three TRABs. Um, I'll do a second Zen gel stent before I do a TRAB. Okay, so the post-op care is very similar to a trabeculectomy post-op care. We have to see them at least once or twice a week for the first four weeks. Uh, and antibiotic drops for one week, slowly taper over actually three to four months. Uh, initially, they're on steroid drops every two hours. Maybe at around week three or four, we can go to every three hours, and then at about a month, month and a half, go to four times a day. So just very slow taper, because uh, I've had patients where if you taper it fast, they get uh, inflammation and the bleb scars and doesn't work anymore. Uh, when I did trabeculectomy, sometimes we would do a digital massage to get more fluid to come out and try to spread the bleb out more. And I tried that initially with a Zen gel stent, and the stent broke. <laughs> so <laughs> I learned that you can't really do that. And it's such a, a small opening that even if you press on the eye, uh, you're not getting a lot of fluid to come out immediately. Uh, it just slowly trickles out. So wouldn't do digital massage. And this is the the one big thing about the Zen Gel Stent. Even though it's a very easy procedure to do in the OR, the post-op care is more because about a third of these patients will start scarring around the, the stent. So we do bleb needlings where at the slit lamp, I go in with a needle, a 27-gauge needle, and basically come across from a a distant spot, come over to the bleb, while I'm moving the needle up and down to try to cut the scar tissue around the stent. And then I try to go in front of the stent, behind the stent, just to clear away any scar tissue. And oftentimes, we can save the bleb that way. So, yeah, up to a third of the patients need it. Uh, done at the slit lamp. And I also inject 5-fluorouracil, which is another, it's a less potent anti-fibrotic agent than mitomycin. Um, and that will help to uh, make the blood function better. But unfortunately, the 5-FU leaks out through the needle hole, and uh, sometimes can compromise corneal epithelial health. and. Uh, they can develop sterile ulcers or get really dry, so they have to use artificial tears a lot. Um, even though Zen stent has less complications than a trabeculectomy, sometimes the pressure can go really low. You know, there's great variability in how thick the conjunctivons is. Some elderly patients can it seems like they barely have any tenons, and the conjure is very thin. And I have had patients where the pressure goes down to two, or and stays around five or six, and then they can get coroto effusions in the back. Uh, There's a B-scan of that. Uh, but most of the time, they resolve on their own. Eventually, the pressure comes up, and the choral effusions disappear. There was one patient where uh, I put in a, a stent, and uh, as I was trying to manipulate it, it broke. So the anterior chamber portion is still in there, but the subconscious portion, there's only like half a millimeter there. And I thought, oh, this may not work. So I put in a second stent, and that was a mistake, <laughs> because he had hypotony. And uh, he developed choroidal effusion, so I had to eventually take him back to the OR to drain the effusions. And uh, I think he's got a little bit of hypotony maculopathy too. I wish you were nearby. <laughs> <laughs> <Just as well>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so even though all the choroidal effusions gone, uh, his pressures about 10 now. He's got a really nice bleb. <laughs> but his vision's still a little blurry. So I'm hoping it'll still clear up. So this, uh, here's a patient that, where the stent, the anterior chamber portion, is a little bit long. Uh, But as long as you have at least one or two millimeters in the subconscious space, uh, it'll still function. So sometimes you can get localized blebs like this, The idea with the Zen gel stent was, because the opening is almost four or five millimeters away from the limbus, that you should get more posterior, more broad blebs. But um, depending on the direction that it went in, uh, ideally you want it to come straight in. But if, uh, if there's scar tissue from previous surgery, or their angle anatomy is different, like uh, I think most likely this is probably a right eye, and you have the nose here, so you have to come in from temporal side, and that's probably why it's angled like this. And if the tip is very superficial, then sometimes you can get a very uh, thin avascular blood. So, here's one that looks a little better. Uh, The bleb is much more diffuse, but this is the one where the pressure went really low and had the choroidal effusions. And uh, here's a patient where you have, it looks like almost four millimeters in the subconch space, uh, but the bleb is more posterior. I don't know if you can tell, but there is some elevation there. (laughs) So here's a patient, this is one of my earlier surgeries, where I went, uh, you know, I'm just trying to stay away from the iris, because when I was injecting, sometimes I'd end up behind the iris, and then I'd pull back. And then, here's one that was too corneal. And and then he started getting fibrosis around there. But so far, the cornea has still been okay, so we haven't needed to remove it. All right, so we're just about done for this part. So, when you refer patients for glaucoma surgery, you know, just communicate the severity, progression, compliance, send visual fields. Uh, This is Talking about the other mixed devices we went over last hour, the eye stents and hydris, and then we'll decide based on their glaucoma status which stent they should get. All right, do you have any questions? Because if not, then we'll go go to more fun things. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Do you hold that yourself, or do you have an assistant? Oh yeah, so I'm holding it myself with my left hand, and then I'm going with the right hand. Uh, there are some gonio lenses that are free-floating that you can just put on there, disposable gonio lenses, and then... Uh, but yeah, so that, that was one of the hardest parts of doing this procedure, to learn how to, how much do you tilt the head, hold this in place, hold it still, and then bring this in. And then, you have to, you know, the trabecular meshwork is really thin. Uh, it's probably like a quarter of a millimeter. So you're trying to get the, the trocar to hit just there. And I remember the very first time I put in an eye stent, we did a wet lab the day before, and it was pretty easy. <laughs> but then, when I got into the eye, as soon as I got close, my my hand would shake. <laughs> so then I pull back, <laughs> and then I say, "Okay, I'll try it again. <laughs> shake again." <laughs> so then I say, "Okay, I'm going to hold my breath and try." <laughs> yeah. So probably first uh, five or ten cases were tougher, but then, you know, everything. The more you do, the easier it gets, and now you just go in and put it in, and if it's So for right eyes, uh, I sit at the head. I'm right-handed, so I can do a temporal clear corneal incision and operate with my right hand. But for left eyes, I was trying to do it left-handed, but I broke capsule and I felt like, okay, I should stop doing that. (laughs) So now I sit on the temporal side. We have surgeons with NPCLI that do left eyes left-handed, right eyes right-handed, because they don't want to keep moving the chair back and forth. They just want to sit at the top. But the eye stents, you pretty much have to go straight on. The hydra if it's right eye, I do a, a right temporal incision and then I'll place it inferiorly. So I just go in through the CCI and place it from 6 to 3 o'clock. So the stent is still in the infronasal quadrant where you have more collector channels. Whereas the left eye, I'm sitting temporally, and I do my surgery this way, but then I'll make a paracentesis at 1 o'clock to insert the hydrus at, th- at the 9 o'clock position going down to 6, so it'll still be nasal, but the opening will be at 9 o'clock, whereas for right eyes, the opening's down at 6 o'clock. I think, uh, well, so when I first started doing it, I used to, for right eyes, I would make a five o'clock, no, seven o'clock paracentesis and then go in and put it at three o'clock and go up to 12. But then that ends up in the supranasal quadrant. And I'm glad you, you asked that because there's been a few cases where I couldn't put it in. And I think the superior canal is thinner than the inferior canal. And, uh, and then there's, you know, studies have shown that, that there's more collector channels inferiorly. So I think it's better to put it in the infranasal quadrant. Though I asked the rep because the way they tell people to do it is uh, it ends up in the supranasal quadrant for right eyes and infranasal quadrant for left eyes if, uh, if they're right-handed. But if they're left-handed, it's opposite. And I asked if there was any difference in the two eyes in their studies, and he said they didn't see any difference. So, I don't know. Okay, so, uh, I think we're going to stop recording now. And Yeah, so those that want COPE approved credits, just email me, paul.chang.pcli.com, and then I'll let you know when it's available, and you can go online and and get it. Okay, we're signing off now. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.